Welcome to Rebalancing Act. Thank you so much for tuning in to listen to us. We are Kieran Waterhouse and Leslie Ann St. Amour, two law grads and friends. We know that climate change is here and that we need to solve it. And so every other Friday, we get together and we talk about how Canada can get there. If you like our content, please follow us at Rebalancing Act on Instagram and at Rebalancing Act with an underscore on Twitter. And no, the underscore was not my idea. It was Twitter's. Apparently someone got there first with the username. And you can always visit us on our website at rebalancingact.ca. And don't forget, we've also recently launched a newsletter you can sign up for. And you can always rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Today, we're going to be talking about carbon footprints. I'm sure you've heard of them. I'm sure you did a carbon footprint calculating exercise in middle school like we all did, but there's a story about them you probably haven't heard yet. Dun dun dun! So, are you ready for story time, Kieran? Oh, I'm always ready for, for story time when the storyteller is so good. Oh, thank you. Ah, oh, shucks. Okay. <laughs> so, let me take your ears and your brain on a little adventure. (laughs) I want you all to feel that like spooky vibe setting kind of moment (laughs) and like picture yourself just like diving into this story. So. Mm -hmm. It is a spooky one. It is. I think so. We're going to start even a little bit before the carbon footprint, if you will, with William Reese. Now, I prefer to picture William Reese, uh, a professor of ecology from University of British Columbia. I like to picture him at a big wooden desk in like a cushy office chair with like big round glasses. No idea if he wears glasses is how I like to picture him. And so Reese, when he was a child, was spending time on his grandparents' farm where he developed an interest in ecology and understanding the relationships between humans and the land. I also choose to picture him with a nice framed photo of, like, him and his grandparents and maybe, like, his favorite cow or sheep. Um, This is very Victorian. I like it. (laughs) I mean, yeah. (laughs) And so, while he was working away trying to understand our resource use, he had a little little bit of a eureka moment, if you will. And because of his, like, farming background, I really like to picture the apple falling on the tree moment even though his eureka moment didn't have to do with gravity. I just feel like it'd be fitting for his vibe. Also, Professor Reese, if I'm getting your vibe entirely wrong, I'm sorry, I mean well. So, (laughs) while he was working away, he bought a new computer, as you do. And as computers do, it was smaller than his previous one, or it took up a smaller footprint as you might say, because it took up less space on his desk. And this Eureka moment is when he first conceptualized the idea of an ecological footprint, which was what he used to refer to the amount of land needed to sustain us. So for example, as a human, I eat so many plantains in a day and I use so many pieces of paper and all of these things go into creating an amount of land that would be needed to sustain me and anyone and do you eat a lot of plantains yeah i just had some for dinner 
I ate a lot of plantains. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. very fun. Nice. I'm glad to know that plantains make up a significant part of your carbon footprint. I once had a science teacher yell at me because she didn't believe my family ate plantains on a regular basis, and she thought I was being, like, I don't know, like, annoying or petty in science class when she had asked us to list the types of fruits that our families eat. And I'm like, you know... I am white, but I feel like this is rude towards all of the possible Latinas that could have been in this room. <laughs> uh, and I've never forgiven her for that. Also, just like just like her thinking, oh, this girl trying to be quirky with what, when she's eating bananas. And you're like, no, I'm like, I really do eat plantains a lot. <laughs> Probably too much. Fair enough. And so Professor Reese created the ecological footprint. And, you know... It was a great idea. I personally prefer that to the carbon footprint. It's much more almost tactile in a way where, you know, no one has any idea what a ton of carbon is. I still don't know. But an acre of land is something I can kind of picture. I can picture land use on board for the ecological footprint idea. And then, unfortunately, in the words of podcast goddesses, Enima Toso and Anne Friedman, the scam is structural. Because you see, BP, or British Petroleum, wanted a new PR campaign. Dun, dun, dun. You still with me, Karen? I'm still here. I'm uh, ears at the ready. Perfect. So it was actually BP who popularized the term carbon footprint. Back in 2004, BP wanted a media campaign that would direct attention on climate change away from the oil and natural gas companies. They wanted it to direct back to, well, us, the consumers. The idea was that if they could convince people to look at their own actions, their own purchases, their own habits, in terms of how much carbon we create and focus on our actions as the way to solve climate change, less attention would be placed on, well, them. And so, the carbon footprint. Can I draw two parallels between this? Can I? You know what? This just reminds me of... This just reminds me... I think brands have become less prevalent in the last decade. But I think, like, the aughts were all about paying... Oh, my God, yes. ...to wear a brand and advertise for them. Yes. And this is just the same Ugh. kind of trickery. Ugh. I had a high school boyfriend who, like... I knew it wasn't going anywhere when he bought me a shirt that just had, like, a big arrow postal across it. Because I was like, when is the last time you saw me wear this? Something that had Aeropostale across it. Classic. Not my thing, sir. Sir. Have you ever looked at me? Sir, have you ever viewed your girlfriend with your eyes before? Excuse me. (laughs) He meant well. Nice boy. Mm -hmm. Wish him all the best. And so, after the release of the carbon footprint idea and BP's carbon footprint calculator, the idea really took off. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, the New York Times, all of these different organizations started putting together their own carbon footprint calculators. I don't know about you, Karen. Did you do one at some point in, like, middle school in those aught years? I don't know if I did one in middle school, but I did one pretty recently, and I think it was extremely disheartening. And it didn't make me want to cut down my carbon footprint. It made me think, like, what the heck? (laughs) BP wasn't the only energy company to be engaging in this kind of PR campaign to keep the climate focus. 
away from them. In recent years, a lot has come out about these campaigns that were happening in the 90s, early 2000s in particular. One of the things a lot of companies were doing was they were targeting media outlets to get them to publish articles and portray positions that were posed to be the classic showing both sides of an argument and to get them to report more on the uncertainties in climate science and those areas of debate so that they could position the industry-backed scientists as expert sources for the media and show it as there being more debate about these issues than there really was in the science community at the time. I just wonder, like, you know, on toothpaste when it says four out of five dentists agree, I feel like the whole climate science debate has really been giving the four dentists who agree and the one dentist that disagrees equal time in the room. But really, like, why is that one dentist against toothpaste? Where did that one, one dentist's cred go? Yeah, it's to me, it's a red flag. Like, if your healthcare professional is the only one to disagree on, like, a commonly used thing, it's concerning, man. Like, what else are they not doing? Yeah, what den- what, what is that dentist recommending instead? Their own dentist-branded dentist toothpaste? I just think it's highly suspicious. Just like climate denier science is highly suspicious. Highly. And highly. <laughs> the scam is highly structural. And so once these oil companies had really fed this image of there still being debate within the scientific community, they were able to target conservative politicians and conservatives with a message that climate change is a leftist issue, that it's not real, that anyone who's so concerned about it is out of touch with the practicalities of life. And so I also feel part of that was climate change is a leftist issue and addressing it involves great personal sacrifice. Totally. And that the people who, you know, could be addressing this, the people who could take action were the people who, you know, have money to burn because they're the urban elites in these overpaid positions, Um, which is isn't the coastal elites are just trying to keep their coastlines. Yeah, they're just, you know. Staring down the brink of a melting ice cap. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, some good poison in the ear. Both the politicians and the scientists fed into each other and really kind of can create their own, a life of its own beyond the oil companies at that point. And it's interesting because it's known that this is a deliberate strategy because internal documents have have become public in the past years that document how they went about doing this, what messages they wanted to target the media with, and how they even knew that climate change was real and happening while they were still putting forward these messages, Um, which I think is just really scary. And it's interesting because while there's no strict evidence that this worked on, on, I'm going to say Americans because it primarily was American companies targeting American media, but so many of us consume American media outside of the U.S., of course. So in the early 90s, a poll was done that showed about 80% of Americans were aware of climate change and accepted that something had to be done about it. And this was an opinion that crossed party lines. However, by 2008, there was a marked partisan divide on climate change. And by 2010, the public's belief in climate change hit an all-time low of 48%. Despite the fact that those 20 years between that survey and the one in the 90s had seen an increase in research, climate modelings, and predictions were already starting to come true. And so over the 20 years, now 30, 
oil companies were engaging in this media strategy, this PR strategy, that we're actually seeing the amount of people who have accepted climate change as fact decrease. This really also, that also just speaks to the nature of misinformation. The purpose of fake news isn't to make you believe the opposite of the truth. It's to sow enough doubt in you that you kind of don't know which side to believe anymore and you and the truth is discredited. It's not that people needed to think adamantly that climate change wasn't happening. It's that people wanted to believe that it wasn't happening because that would be more convenient and that maybe if there was enough doubt that it was happening that they could shut it out of their minds. Totally. And what I think is also so interesting is that they started to see a partisan divide. Like, it's not only that were they managing to sow doubt about this concept, but that they were actually successfully sowing doubt on one side of the political spectrum and also feeding into that polarization and antagonism between the two sides of the political spectrum while doing this. Now we've established that, well, one... Professor Reese was great, and we really just should have stuck to the ecological footprint. And I do really hope that his vibe is as I have described it, because that is how I feel it in my heart. And on the other hand, BP hired a PR company, and they're all, you know, sitting around the big boardroom table in their suits being like, how can we take the attention away from ourselves? Hmm... And passed it on to us with this idea of the carbon footprint taking away from the ecological footprint idea and turning it into this household term that doesn't really mean much. And like, why? So I totally get that. But wouldn't the ecological footprint also be kind of on us? Would we just be measuring our ecological footprint and it's kind of the same thing, but it like quantifies it differently? Yeah, like it is definitely the same thing, but I think it's a more useful measurement personally to talk about land that we're using as opposed to like the nebulous term of carbon. BP launched its first carbon footprint calculator in 2004, and it was already in 2007 that researchers at MIT did a study that found that a homeless person who ate in soup kitchens and slept in homeless shelters in the U.S., still had a carbon footprint of 8.5 tons. And that's just because of the systemic existing things outside of this person's control. Because they were not opting into travel anywhere. They weren't buying a new phone or a new computer. They All of those purchases were told to think about our carbon emissions in respect to. They weren't making. Yeah, and they weren't living ostensibly a quote-unquote good life that we should be seeking to provide for each other. Absolutely. And so they found that there's basically this, you know, we talk about the glass ceiling of what's keeping us from succeeding in many different forms. But in this case, there was that oily floor, this carbon floor that you could not get below in terms of your carbon footprint because of the way our society is structured. And if you will, the scam is structural. I think that really goes to the heart of what's so nebulous about measuring things in carbon anyways. Carbon is just this symptom, in my mind, of a lack of sustainability or, you know, whatever you want to call it, like rejuvenating the earth, rebalancing. Like the carbon that we emit is a a symptom 
of our choice to drive cars that are powered by fossil fuels. It's a symptom of society's decision to eat certain amounts of meat. It's a symptom of, you know, all of these lifestyle choices uh, and structural and policy choices that we've made. But I don't think that the carbon itself is the enemy. In fact, it's like what we're made out of. And I think it's so interesting because we've, and I'm guilty of this too, we've essentially equated carbon and greenhouse gases. When carbon isn't the only gas that's warming our atmosphere, nor is it the most potent when it comes to warming our atmosphere, but it's just the most, it's the most emitted. And so it's become this catch-all term. And it, I don't like that because it takes away from our actual options. One of the reasons that eating beef is significant for climate change is because the beef industry is a heavy emitter of methane, which is actually a more powerful greenhouse gas than carbon. And so when you oversimplify things and just talk about carbon, you're kind of missing on actual opportunities to address some of these issues. For example, with the beef too, I think, you know, something that's becoming more and more realized too is like the links between livestock and factory farming and the antibiotic problem, that 70% of antibiotics are consumed in factory farms. Totally. And I think what's really interesting is, you know, we've talked about why the carbon footprint already back in 2007 wasn't really a useful structure to be using but it's really stuck around and almost grown so currently there's a subsidiary of bp that's developed an app that will track your carbon footprint throughout the day based on what you're doing and suggest different offsets that you can buy to compensate for that carbon you're admitting and not only that but recently google announced that it has that it's wiped out its entire carbon footprint that it has like ever had by by buying offsets. And so this also gets into the idea of like, we're almost recognizing that the carbon footprint is not the most helpful because it, it does have this oily folor that we can't break through. And so we're looking at buying offsets. And offsets can be helpful and useful, but at the same time, how useful is this idea to be decreasing our carbon if the solution is just to buy an offset? So we're still actually admitting that carbon and keeping it central to our economy, which I imagine is the goal of these oil companies. And so I think we're, ta- we're essentially admitting it's not the right measure. It's not the most helpful measurement to be using. I also really think going back to an early earlier thing that you said about you know, um, making the need for climate action seem like this huge sacrifice. I feel like the nature of carbon footprints is to minimize your life in a way that just feels like all pain and no gain. Like carbon footprints really quantify the cost of living as a human in this world in ways that make you, you know, the best way to lower your carbon footprint is to move out into the wilderness, become a subsistence farmer, and never go anywhere or see anybody. Yeah. Or eat or drink any particularly tasty foods. And, like, I don't think that's the future that we want. I don't think so either. That's the kind of thinking it encourages. And so what I think is really interesting about this to me also is when I was thinking about that and thinking about the idea of how a carbon footprint 
essentially asks you to make sacrifices in your own life, it makes our carbon emissions basically a class issue. Because if you think about it this way, if we all have our carbon footprint and you know there's that floor that we can't get below because of the way our society is structured, the only way to reduce your footprint to become carbon neutral following this idea is to then buy offsets. And so are we making climate action, are we making being carbon neutral something only accessible to the wealthy? And is that something we want? Yeah, it's, it feels very unfair the way that it's all set up. It really, it, um, I just don't think it's, it's not the best way, but you know, I guess I wonder, I wonder like, do you know, you know, what do we do instead? We still need to measure it. I also do think, you know, I don't really pay too much attention to carbon footprints in the granular sense for all of the reasons that we reasons that we've discussed. But I do think it's important for people to have some ownership over their relationship to the natural world. So it's like, how do we find a better system? Definitely. I think, and so something that, um, something I was thinking about is how I actually find carbon footprints more helpful when it's on not an individual scale, when it's on the scale of, say, a city or a country or a province. I can look at a carbon footprint for Toronto and say, wow, this takes into account the things I don't have control over. But it also takes into account things I do have control over, you know, my emissions, those of my community, my neighborhood. And it's small enough that I can still take action on it. I can lobby my municipality to make changes. Or I can look at my own changes that I can make in my life. But it's not so individual that I'm seeing my share of the societal carbon in a way that I can't change it. And I think you're right, we do still have to measure it, and I do still want people to be aware of the choices they're making, but I worry that the carbon footprint can make people feel discouraged or that their actions won't do anything when you can only reduce your footprint so much. Reducing carbon footprints are not going to solve climate change. There's a 0% chance. And I think that we know that, A, because BP designed them, and B, because like so many other really painful, excruciating half measures that sometimes the climate narratives ask us to do, they're not transformative. Carbon footprints aren't asking you to go out and find climate solutions to make your life better. Like, they're not going around measuring the amount of carbon sinks that you're helping generate as a community either. They're really missing that whole climate solutions part of the picture. It's like, how can we make our bad selves as small and insignificant as possible, instead of asking how can, you know, humans become more of a keystone species again. That's true. There's one thing that I thought was interesting that some social scientists think that these small actions that in the scheme of things aren't aren't going to change things are useful just for the sake of getting people politically active and to feel involved. And so the examples I've seen given are, you know, reusable bags at the grocery store which has become such a norm. And it's something that people can do and they feel good about. And maybe that lets them consider doing something else because they know how good it felt to bring the reusable bag. Or they've talked about the... I want to promote reusable bags as an experience because they're just made better. They're just a better bag. Like, 
When I have a flat bottomed reusable bag with thick handles, you know what, I can carry a lot more milk than I can carry in a plastic bag. I've also just had those experiences before where you're carrying the bag starts out by the handle. Then by the time that you get back to your place, you're like cradling it in your arms and it's splitting at yeah. the seams. You know, that doesn't happen with my reusable bags. It's just like experientially. And I would like to suggest life. reusable bags as a method to avoid food waste. Because if you have your reusable bag and you know you want all your groceries to fit in that bag, you're not going to buy that extra package of celery just because it's on sale and then have it rot in your fridge. <laughs> Leslie Ann, look at you going wild on celery. <laughs> I like that you chose that as a... St- <laughs> Ah, yes, the extravagant celery. <laughs> it's because there's a package of celery in my fridge right now that I feel obligated to eat. <laughs> I knew. It's leftover from Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is a celery-centric meal. Yeah, celery is the kind of veggie that sits in the crisper drawer and taunts you. It's like, what are you going to do with me? And, like, yeah... I want everyone who does carry a plastic bag to just try a reusable bag, see how good it feels, and embrace that feeling, and go become more politically engaged. And I feel like on the one hand, maybe carbon footprints can do some of this, because you know, you do yours and you're like, oh wow, if I just stopped doing this one thing, my carbon footprint would actually change. So maybe it has a little bit of that, but I don't know. Let's not gaslight ourselves. I also really think, like, you know what doesn't work? Shaming people. You know what does work? Making people feel good. Totally. Pretty advanced psychology right there. But I really think carbon footprints divide and conquer. And they really don't bring out the best in us. And you know what? One good thing 2020 has brought us, when we all went into isolation in March and no one went anywhere... And there was barely any traffic. Everyone was like, wow, carbon emissions are gonna drop. And then they didn't. And 2020 and COVID confirmed for us, the scam is structural. Yeah. Because we cannot control carbon emissions so much with our daily actions. It's true. Well, I think, look, you can have it. There are, there are multiple paths. These two paths diverge. Path one, you do nothing. <laughs> you still create a whopper of a carbon footprint. Path two, you get to have transportation in electric vehicles. You get to be powered by renewable energy. You get to not live a restrictive covid life and your carbon footprint goes to net zero. Like you can, we can do this whole carbon reduction thing in a way that is excruciatingly painful and feels like a great personal sacrifice for like zero gain. We can also do it in a way that optimizes our lives and isn't that bad of a sacrifice and makes our air cleaner so i don't know we have two options i don't know if i'm overselling the first one you'll have to let me know i don't know that you're overselling but i really just want to ensure in your second option for some the idea of carbon offsets being something that you can just choose to buy is like good but it also concerns me for that class issue and so you know i love sort of, that Google decided to wipe out their entire carbon footprint by buying offsets. That's great. But they're still emitting that carbon. But they get to have the promo of this. 
Can we not just require that maybe corporations buy more offsets or create more offsets in what they're doing instead of making it this marketable thing that they can choose to do to feel good about and then... I think the logical end of that is not that corporations buy more offsets, it's that they decide to like run their operations in a way that creates less carbon. So like that's where the incentive comes from. I know what you mean though. My view on offsets is that I think that they're good for flying because flying is a thing that, you know, actually we're not going to have solar powered planes because the energy density just isn't there. We might create some really clean fuels that we pull the carbon out of the air for and then it's recycled. So we have some options. They're not going to happen for the next decade and people still want to fly places. I just think that once we start measuring things in carbon footprints, it like really strips the value out of them. Because in my opinion, certain high intensity carbon activities are not made equal. And I would also just like to say that whoever this homeless man is that they decided to study and then tell him that he still has a giant carbon footprint, even though he's homeless. I hope you were well compensated, sir. Because that can't have been a fun process. And on that note, what time is it? It's time for something a little bit fun. Climate allies. To be clear, that was not rehearsed. It was just serendipitous. <laughs> so, Tell me about the climate ally for today, Lesbian. The climate ally today is like peak Canadian climate ally. Okay. <laughs> the climate allies are people with backyard ice rinks and skaters and people wanting to measure the effects of climate change. I hope for any of you who are not Canadian and are listening, I hope this is your introduction to backyard rinks because they are a time. I have a very, ugh, such love for them. They're such a Canadian thing to do. Oh yeah, my dad used to flood the driveway. Oh yeah, yeah. My, one of my childhood best friends, her dad made a backyard rink every year, and her birthday was in February, so it would always be a skating party. That's pretty sick. <laughs> yep. My favorite thing to do with my backyard rink was, like, you know those squeegees that you, like, can use to, like, yes. break down a glass window? I mean, I actually didn't enjoy skating on it that much, but what I used to do was, like, pour water on it and then, like, squeegee it like a Zamboni would because I always wanted the ice to be smooth. So that was my backyard <laughs> rink experience. That's so on brand for you. It's very besides the point. <laughs> so, <laughs> I can't. There's this website and organization called Rink Watch. And what I think is really interesting that they do, and it's a citizen science initiative based with, sorry, not based, but launched by researchers at Laurier University back in 2013. And so what they do is they recruit people who have backyard rinks to monitor and report on the conditions of their rink with the location, the date, the weather. And so with this data, they're able to create new climate models, make predictions, and help make their information more accurate because they're able to get data points from so many different people all over. I think the stat I saw was that they have, yeah, more than 
1,400 outdoor rinks and ponds that are submitting data to this project, which I just think is incredible. And so I think it's really interesting because it really is a win-win, which we love here on Rebalancing Act. Love it. Because the scientists get the data they need. And the skaters and the backyard rink owners get to better understand what their skating future will look like and contribute to creating a better future. Because right now it's thought that Montreal and Toronto could lose up to 43% of their skating days within the next 70 years. That's wild. That is so much. I don't want that future. And that's, no. And that's because winters are getting warmer, but also they're getting more variable. And you know how it's not only about the cold, but it's about having good weather for your rink. You know, if it's too snowy and then frozen and then melty and then snowy again, you don't get good ice. And so... Little Kieran Zamboni would not have been able to handle that kind of ice quality. No. And that's really sad. It is sad. It's hoped that by kind of connecting climate change to, while not Canada's official sport, one of Canada's favorite sports and mistakenly thought to be our official sport, (laughs) by connecting it to hockey and figure skating and skating more broadly in such a classic pastime, it's thought that they'll be able to engage more people in the climate solution and in climate change. And as we just talked about, it's those little steps that make you feel good that can help you become more politically active. And this is a way for people who may not have otherwise thought of themselves as the type who'd want to get involved, find a reason to get involved. Totally. And honestly, this is just the kind of allyship that like everyone knew was coming because of course the hockey players are going to be concerned about the ice rinks. This just makes sense. And like, it's so important to remember when you hear this stat that 70 years from now, we could lose half of our skating days. That doesn't mean you should think, ah, I am resigned to this iceless future now. It means that future is less good than the other future that we could have. We should aim for the other one instead. And we still can't. And I think that's what really this is all about, is just how are we thinking about our futures? How are we thinking about our own actions? And how are we thinking about the actions that we don't have a choice about? How are we thinking about how society structures things? And how can we get to climate solutions. That is not the type of climate action that would be recorded in the carbon footprint, but I think it's very valuable. And that's so true. Thank you so much, citizen scientists, for making this dream a reality. Absolutely, because I honestly love the citizen scientist vibe. So much is so important because scientists can't be everywhere. And I wish that was included in our carbon footprints. Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing that, Lizanne. Happy to. Thank you, Rinkwatch, for doing that. Before we say our goodbyes for this week, I do want to leave folks with one call to action. What I would really love to see people do, and I want to do this myself because I haven't already, talking about carbon footprints and how much is structural and what, on what scale they're actually helpful. I want to look at my local area and look at, find out who is one big carbon emitter or a big carbon spender, if you will, thinking about offsets. <laughs> and I want to put pressure on my 
local government to monitor and deal with these carbon emissions in a way that can reduce our locality's carbon footprint. Because I want to reduce my carbon footprint, and I can't do that alone. So thank you.